The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Terratech with Jim Lane. Terratech is all about the products and companies that are using substantial materials that are changing the way we dress, eat, drink, shop, and live. We are becoming a more bioeconomic society and are more aware of the products in our lives. Now, here's your host, Jim Lane. Welcome to Terratech. I'm your host, Jim Lane, for the next 60 minutes as we explore emerging companies and new products in the marketplace that change the way that people eat, drive, dress, drink, and get well. Nine billion people, that's the population that the UN tells us that we're going to have by 2050. That's a lot of mouths to feed. And we're going to have the same land base, of course, to do it with. Well, there's a new company coming up fast that's developing a new approach to help farmers increase crop yield and profitability in a sustainable way. Obviously, that's what we need. And joining us to introduce the company, Kevin Chen is the CEO of Crop Enhancement, and David Sohn is the founder and chief technology officer. David and Kevin, good morning, and thanks for joining us on TerraTech. Kevin, there's a whole world that can use an increase in crop yields. Where do you start? Uh one of the most difficult places to do farming and arguably one of the places in the world where sustainability is really needed is in the tropics. So the tropical band and in the tropics, there is just a wealth of crop that's, that's being produced. Um, you know, cocoa is produced there, coffee, bananas, oranges, pineapples, uh, you know, things like palm oil, and the list goes on. This, these are billion-dollar crops. And so uh, for us, you know, one of the first crops that we started working on and we've been working on is cocoa. Well, we've heard, we've heard over the years that, you know, going back many, many years ago, it was considered a medicinal. Mm-hmm. You could, you could uh, take cocoa for a variety of ailments. Is that, um, is that an old wives' tale or is, that, is there something to that? I think in the past, that's how it uh, became kind of kind of used uh, way in the past. Um, and there have been recent studies, uh, again, um, uh, uh, there have been recent studies about the use of cocoa and how it actually helps uh, in terms of uh, bodily health. So um, it, it's, a, it's kind of a fun, it's a fun uh, a product, which is uh, uh, fun to eat, but also healthy. So yeah, people should eat more chocolate, I guess. Same thing. David, uh, tell us a little bit about why you think cocoa was an appropriate first target. Uh, Kevin's the guy who sets the strategy for the company as CEO, but you're the one as, as CTO, technology officer, has got to deliver. Why, why cocoa? Why is that, uh, uh, why is that a, a, an appealing target for you? Mm, yeah, that's a very good question. First of all, I like chocolate. Uh, it makes one feel good eating chocolate. And with the rising population of the middle class from emerging countries like China or India, there's a shortage in supply of uh, chocolate. Um, so the price differential 
has skyrocketed in recent years. But uh, cultivation of cocoa in the tropics is a very difficult affair. There are a lot of subsistence farmers having an acre or so. Uh, They toil under hot sun. Uh, There's a lot of crop damage due to uh, uh, torrential downpour as well as insects. So why is it, why is it particularly <laughs> susceptible? Or, um, I mean, you know, clearly we're finding out that perhaps fruit flies in Indonesia like chocolate just as much as we do. But uh, are there any particular pests that um, are, are particularly difficult to work on? Yeah, there's a, a single pest that's doing most of the damage in Indonesia. It's called cocoa pot borer. It lays eggs on the uh, surface of the pod, it burrows through the thick skin, damages the, the beans inside. Um, so this is a, a very good tar- target for our first product, which Kevin will talk about, uh, which is called Crop Coat. It's a protective coating comprising naturally occurring ingredients. Our scientists work uh, multiple years to develop this technology. I'm quite excited about this. Instead of uh, spraying pesticides uh, multiple times, uh, per season you spray a couple times, you save labor, you, you preserve the, applic- the farmers applying this material's health, and most importantly for the consumers, the chocolate is, uh, it doesn't have any pesticide residues because this is a, this completely different approach. Now, when we get to when we get to the uh, the individual grower, these are as you've mentioned subsistence farmers, so usually very small plots. What kind of acreage would a would a typical cocoa farmer have to work with um, at this at this point of time? Presumably, you're going to tell me that uh, one of the advantages here is by increasing farmer income, it makes it more possible for them to make a good living off a small holding instead of selling out for. Uh, you know, condo development or for palm oil or something like that. Is that, uh, is that the case, Kevin? <laughs> yes, yes. Um, yeah, that, that is the case. Um, uh, cocoa is an interesting crop because a large amount of the cocoa production in the world is done by smallholders. And, you know, a typical smallholder might have one to two hectares in their, uh, uh, in their farm, which is maybe two to five acres. So it's, it's quite small when compared to so-called plantation crops. Um, and, you know, it's for, for them, they are directly living uh, uh, off of the income from their small farms. And so any increase in yield or reduction in, in input costs, namely things like fertilizer, pesticides, and other uh, materials that they use to produce the crop, any change in those variables really impacts their bottom line quickly. Now, what one of the want to point out, though, is that when we started uh, looking at this space, we identified cocoa and uh, found that our product really does deliver meaningful yield increase to uh, to cocoa producers. And we said, well, boy, if if it works there, you know, where else could it where else could it work? And so, like a like a typical startup, you know, you you have a beachhead. Uh, and, you know, our job is to figure out how to expand that, that, that beachhead and make the, 
uh, make the product more applicable uh, uh, globally. And so more recently, we have begun uh, expanding into other crops such as coffee, which is also a major crop in in the uh, sort of the tropical band of the world. We have seen very good results on improving performance uh, of pest management for coffee. And we've also uh, started looking at uh, things like citrus. It, it, this is like a shield. It's, it's shielding the surface from damage. If we can help shield the underlying surface, whether it's a leaf, whether it's the bark, uh, whether it's the fruit itself or the crop itself, we are going to be doing our job in helping farmers to increase their yields. Um, so there's very high value crops uh, here in the U.S., uh, such as uh, you know nut crops. Um, there's even potential in uh, non-food crops, including cotton. Uh, and you know the list Lift. goes on. I mean, what what kind of increases are we looking at? These are these materially transformative, you know, twenty percent, fifteen percent yield increases, or is it much more modest than that? Right. In, in the case of cocoa, we are seeing tremendous yield increases. Um, uh, really, depending on the uh, what's called the pest pressure in that season, we can see yield increases up to thirty percent. And uh, as you mentioned, you know, a, a, a more sort of typical increase might be in the single digit percentages. And when you get into the 10 to 15, you know, that's starting to be really meaningful. When you get to 20 and 30, that is uh, something that, that, that people just have to take a look at. What, what can you tell us about the technology behind uh, the secret sauce here? What's the, what's the approach? What makes this technologically different than what other people have tried before? Well, I'll give, I'll, I'll give a little bit of insight into that. You know, products that farmers use have to be easy to use. They have to be very robust. The last thing they want to do is worry about if it's, if it's there, if it's going to be there tomorrow, what happens if it rains, is it going to, do I need to go out again and respray my crop? Those are the kinds of problems that we uh, took into account as we developed the, the technology. What kind, of, what kind of stuff do you make it from? Uh, we, we basically take naturally occurring materials and uh, we've formulated them into this very stable uh, uh, product. David, tell us a little bit about your background. Obviously, you're chief technology officer, founder. You have been working on this uh, for quite some time, but other opportunities would have come your way. Why do a startup? Why try to change the world? Why take such a big target? What's, uh, wh- wh- where, where do you get your passion? from uh jen yes i was uh i was an academician i was a professor at the university of california at berkeley for 15 years before striking out and joining the uh, entrepreneurial world uh i have uh started uh, a dozen companies all in advanced material space and i enjoy working on real world problems looking at my life just in my lifespan, the world's population has more than doubled. And we are at the top of the food chain. Our impact on the environment is the, is the most severe amongst all species. We have a responsibility to leave the planet to future generations in better hands, in better condition. 
So I always wanted to bring cutting-edge science, technology, chemistry, to solve massive problems. That's why I worked on cleaning water, I worked on energy, I worked on construction materials, I worked on uh, fabrics, because you wear things, you eat things. Looking at agriculture, everybody in the world needs to be fed. The, the trick is how to use sustainable practice by not only not using pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, and so on, these artificial chemicals, but actually using naturally occurring materials to replace these things. So crop coat, our first product, is just a protective coating. In fact, um, finding materials that will spontaneously self-assemble at interfaces, in this case, solid and air interface or solid liquid interface between water and the soil, between water and cocoa pot surface, that's the trick. Um, if, if I look at uh, sustainable agriculture, the lofty goal of elimination or minimization, let's put it this way, of artificial chemicals, it's imperative on scientists to discover ways to minimize the usage, to minimize the runoff. Um, so we are actually developing protective coatings on grains of these uh, uh, fertilizer pellets. And we develop the technology so it's tunably releasing material, the material just as needed. And we can tune it so it can be broadcast uh, in the right geography with the right release rate. So in the tropics, it will release slowly. In more arid con conditions, it will release more rapidly because there's little rainfall. Well, Kevin, let me ask the same question of you. You know, you're a bright young guy, you're very articulate. You could be working at Snapchat, developing, developing new, you know, internet apps. What, uh, <laughs> what gives you the passion to, uh, to work in something as important yet um, uh, slightly less sexy, perhaps, than some of the other uh, Silicon Valley technologies? Yeah, it, you really hit on the, the key word there is passion. Uh, for me, I guess the, in the last several years of my career, I've, I've been fortunate to start to really find areas where I can uh, really apply my skills and be passionate about. Uh, before I joined Crop Enhancement, I was in the renewable energy industry for about eight years and really felt that that was and that still is extremely meaningful, not only to myself, but to the world. And so uh, I, I feel really uh, great about what we're doing at Crop Enhancement. Uh, personally, uh, uh, it's, it's very rewarding to know that what we're working on as a company is going to have impact in the world. It's easy to explain. Everyone can understand uh, the, the need. And so it's, it's very relevant. And uh, that's just, that just makes me really excited. Um, I do want to say one thing reflecting on what David just mentioned about uh, uh, the approach we're taking. One of the beauties that uh, I'd like to point out of, of the approach we have is that it really is a platform approach. And from a, from a business point of view, a platform is extremely powerful because it can spawn off any number of products. 
So I'll give an example. We've been talking about the crop coat platform and David brought up the tunable release platform. The initial sort of manifestation of the, of the crop coat platform is this, is this uh, barrier coat uh, that, that we've been talking about. We have a roadmap though of extending that platform into other derivative products. So I'll give an example of, of the potential. Uh, we, we're seeing a lot of focus on biologicals in the in the agricultural world, in other words, use of natural microbes or other uh, 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 biologicals to enhance uh, yield. Uh, one of the challenges with biologicals is how do you deliver them to the right spot, and how do you keep them viable in the environment where there's harsh conditions? We believe that our platform can help in that process by combining biologicals, for example, with our uh, platform, we can Im- improve the performance of both and add, you know, sort of combine the mechanisms of each component together for a more powerful solution. So that, that's just a, a taste of where this platform can go. Uh, so companies that are developing biologicals may be interested in checking us out. Uh, you know, growers who are interested in moving to more sustainable agriculture should check us out. This is really what makes me excited. So from, from a, to get back to your question, Jim, from, from a personal passion point of view, uh, there's, there's a lot to be done here. And, and that's, I think in a startup, that, that's really what drives a startup is, is the team's passion. And I think we have that. But the other thing is on a, on, from a business point of view, it has to also make sense. And we believe ours does where if you have a platform, you can really extend it to many, many different applications. Well, we've been talking with a new technology company, Crop Enhancement, delivering higher yields through technologies like Crop Coat, uh, transforming yield in the tropics, crops like cocoa and coffee, more to come and more applications. CEO, Kevin Chen, Chief Technology Officer, David Sohn. Thanks for joining us on TerraTech today. We've enjoyed having you. Hope to have you back again. Thanks so much, Jim. It's been great talking with you. We'll take a short break. We'll be back with Will Thurman, the author of Algae 2020, to look at transformative products made from algae, algae, and more algae. So stay with us on TerraTech. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. TerraTech is brought to you by the Advanced Bioeconomy Leadership Conference, March 1st through 3rd in Washington, D.C. Technology Convergence, Energy Security, Advanced Manufacturing, and Clean Economy Jobs. The RFS, which is Renewable Fuel Standard, is an important tool in the mission to achieve energy independence for the United States. Energy independence is a requirement of America's to become great again. My theme is make America great again. I will do all that is in my power as president to achieve that goal. Combination of biology and uh, the technologies coming out of IT is really what's going to drive some amazing oil prices. Yes, the story on everyone's talking about. But if the U.S. can prove that next-gen biofuels works and that you know other technologies work like DME and and really great kind of biogas vehicles, then they can export that. The thing that really is exciting is this convergence. To learn more, visit biofuelsdigest.com/ablc. 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Terra Tech. To reach Jim Lane or his guest today, call into the program at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You may also send an email to jlane at biofuelsdigest.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to TerraTech. I'm your host, Jim Lane. In this segment, we're going to go back in time to the oldest superfood, food, super fuel, super vitamin of all, and that's algae. And the author of the definitive study on algae's prospects and promise as a technology base for making stuff that's LG 2020. The author is Will Thurman. He's joining us live this morning from Houston. Good morning, Mr. Thurman. Thanks for joining us on TerraTech. Uh, good morning, Jim, and uh, happy new year. It's good to be here with you at your inaugural issue of TerraTech. Hey, Will, back in 2009, they called it the summer of algae. Everyone was going to make renewable fuels, cars of the future, even jets of the future. We were all going to run on super fuel. And there were a lot of tests, investment, even a couple of IPOs came along. At the time, you said, no, 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 they're going to be making nutraceuticals, maybe some food and animal feeds, small markets, high margin products, while the technology got on its feet. That, that kind of turned out to be the case. Um, so let's, uh, let's ask you, first of all, what is a nutraceutical anyway? Oh, hey, um, well, a nutraceutical is uh, something you would find if you go into Whole Foods uh, or if you go into GNC nutritional markets and, and you look over, you look closer to the top shelf and you're finding things like Spirulina, things you you would buy at say a seven or eight dollar health food drink, uh, things such as omega threes, omega omega sixes, you could buy uh, at, at the higher end, uh, things that are good for heart health and for nutrition. Uh, also, uh, new things like new flowers and, and proteins that uh, that can be used as as health food supplements. So this is the real high end of the food chain between Whole Foods and GNC. So when we're talking about things like omega-3s, um, this is something we've seen uh, companies like DSM, which is a, a European-based company, uh, acquired a company called Martech that's been making it for a long time. Now, they use it as a supplement uh, for people who are uh, using like a, a mother's milk uh, alternative. Is that the case? Yes. Uh, yeah, DSM had quartered that, that market. They had some well over 95% share of the market before they were bought with almost $1 billion in, in cash by DSM several years ago. Uh, so they, they have a, a proven technology that's been developed over about 15 years uh, to focus on that market for a baby food formula, infant food formula. Uh, and they developed a molecule that can only be found in uh, natural women's breast milk that cannot be synthesized. Uh, that's how they got a big start in the market, and, and they're leveraging uh, their uh, knowledge of, uh, of consumers and, and technologies and, and markets to get out into a few other ones like omega-3s. 
Now, a lot of people take fish oil supplements to get things like omega-3s, and um, you told me one time that, that uh, they don't actually, that the fish don't actually make omega-3s, they actually get it from algae. Is that, is that the case? Did I remember that correctly? I, I don't know the specifics on that, uh, Jim, but the microbiologists that I've, I've talked with uh, tell me that that's, that is the case, that um, things like fish and crustacean and shrimp uh, will eat the algae, they get their omegas from the, the algae. And um, if, if you watch National Geographic special, we look at uh, flamingo, pink flamingos, well, they get their color from, uh, which is a, a hot uh, topic for algae production, they get their color from the red algae. And that also gives them their nutrition. It's their breeding ground where they go because that's where the good stuff is. Uh, so the pink ones are the ones that are able to uh, reproduce. So we see a lot of that um, in, in nature that's being replicated for human consumption. So here we are at the top of the food chain. Something eats algae, we eat something, and, and there we're getting our omega-3. So it's a, it's a big accumulation, uh, like an aggregation racket. Is that, that's basically the way it works. And algae, the algae industry is trying to circumvent that, I guess. Um, yes. Uh, it, the algae industry has uh, found for, uh, for many years that there are regulated and unregulated markets. So the very top of the algae model goes to pharmaceuticals, and those are difficult uh, to, to trial and, and to get out in the market. But the nutraceutical market is, uh, in many cases, unregulated, uh, particularly in the U.S. So companies are able to get in uh, percentages uh, of, of their total omega-3s or percentages of their total DHA uh, from algae and get into the market that way, which is uh, a lot easier than, getting, uh, than trying to break into the pharmaceutical market and go through a lot of F, uh, food trials and FDA trials like that. Now we had a we had a company that we followed for quite a quite a time called uh, Solazine, which uh, developed originally as a fuels play. They were going to grow algae in a pond and make a fuel. Uh, eventually, they started making them in a in a traditional fermenter, like you would make wine. Uh, but again, the target was uh, primarily fuels. And then uh, over time, they found some opportunities to make nutritional products. They're making an algae flour and an algae oil, and things got so hot and hot and exciting for them that they changed their name. They're now Terravia. And uh, so, so what's the, uh, why is algae flour a hot topic these days for companies like uh, Terravia? Who's going to use it and why, doesn't it, why does it taste like flour and not like fish? <laughs> okay. <clears throat> well, um, to the first market for, for algae flour, uh, flour, as you see, uh, are uh, baby boomers in the United States. We have a huge baby boomer population and it's now retiring and, and uh, looking for uh, for things to mitigate things like heart disease and diabetes and, and uh, obesity and some of the other things and, and joint pain. Um, so one thing they're looking for is nutrition. How do we get better nutrition into my diet? How do I get uh, uh, lower fat forms of protein, uh, uh, lower sodium, those kind of things? And what Solazine, which is that TerraTech figured out, was uh, when you're done with getting the oil out of the algae, you're left with protein and carbohydrates. And this is, uh, and so they fractionated those into two, different markets, uh, carbohydrates for one market, proteins for another market. These proteins are largely going for human consumption at the top end, uh, closer to those um, GNC and uh, Whole Foods type of markets. Uh, and that's where you see customers with larger disposable incomes uh, and the, the baby boomers uh, looking for better nutrition, shopping for products like this. Now, are most of these companies, are they going to try to make products directly for the marketplace under their own brand? Or are they going to partner and supply ingredients? What's the, what's the trend over there for algae producers? 
I think the trend is more towards uh, partnering and, uh, and leveraging bigger players and manufacturers and their distribution channels to, to try to go it alone and go directly. Um, uh, several years ago, when Terravia uh, was named uh, Solozyme, they tried on the home shopping network uh, with a, uh, a beauty product, a cosmetics product. And that worked okay, but what we're discovering with uh, companies like uh, Terravia and Fermentolic and others, and, it's in, and even with DSM, it's easier to go through companies that are already in the market and already have an existing distribution chain and work with them and partner with them and, uh, along the supply chain to try to get what you can produce uh, into the market through manufacturing and distribution deals. Yeah, that was that product, Alginist, right? That uh, that kind of took QVC by storm. I, I, you know, I, I gave some to my wife as a Christmas gift, and I'm, I'm really on the hook there. It's pretty darn expensive for that stuff, and she swears by it. So, so I have to get it for not only Christmas but also birthdays. Is uh, it's, it's proven, it's proven popular. Is that uh, they actually sold the, uh, the division to raise some money for their. Uh, nutritional uh, uh, focal points. So they're still going to manufacture, but under somebody else's brand. So there's an uh, there's an example of an early breakout. Is that was that the kind of thing that you expected when you were originally writing Algae 2020 that we'd be talking about uh, Alginist uh, beauty and skin creams? No, I, I, I got an algae because I was I'm in the energy business. I'm very uh, passionate about energy independence in the U.S. and uh, being able to make, grow our own energy. So. I never thought we'd be getting into things like Olive Lake, ladies' facial creams, but it makes sense. When you look at these companies, there a lot of these companies are startups that need money. Uh, they're hungry for cash, and it's easier for them to sell Olive Olay at $5,000 per gallon than it is to sell biodiesel at $5 per gallon. So they're going to go where they can make money, and that's what we saw with Solenzyme down Terravia seven years ago, and that's what we're seeing with a lot of these other uh, emergent players. They're coming out now, and they're taking their shots at different markets where established players like DSM and, and Terravia and Earthrise are, and they're, they're trying to penetrate those markets and segment them and get into some of the smaller sub-segments where they, can, where they have advantages where they can compete. You know, we saw that uh, the new incoming CEO at, at Terravia is Apu Modi, who used to be the head of the North American business for Mars, so Mars Bars, but also they're a big player in pet food and and they made some investments in algae themselves through a company called Helier. What, um, what, what, what is there in the animal food business? Because that's that Mars is a huge pet food uh, supplier and did a big acquisition in that area just in the last uh, week. So, um, animal food is that uh, animal feed protein? Is that is that a big opportunity? And is that now or later? Uh, yes, and yes, <laughs> it's a big opportunity. It's a, it's a big opportunity now, uh, and. It will be a, a bigger opportunity later. Uh, you know, the, the company I work with is called Emerging Markets Online. We focus on trends in the emerging markets for uh, for products and services. And what are the needs? And the needs are going to be for energy and they're going to be for food. And the United States has quite a lot of uh, food and a lot of energy, and it's needed in places like China and India. Uh, and uh, one thing I learned from the NASA scientists here in Houston is that uh, it, that uh, pet food and animal food is going to be needed to feed uh, the growing populations of China and India. And uh, it takes a cow, something like uh, seven pounds of uh, protein to, to produce one pound of beef. Uh, it takes a chicken, something like three pounds of protein to produce one pound of chicken with fish. It's, it's about a one-to-one -one ratio. So I think we're going to see a lot more uh, a beginning focus on, on cattle, uh, a much bigger focus on, on protein for pork. And uh, what we're going to see over the longer term is uh, focus on proteins for fish. 
and especially proteins that don't have to be grown on your traditional animal farms, things that can be substituted by uh, algae, by protein substitutes like algae. So we also come back to the old age-old question there, who's going to feed China, right? Because we've, we've heard that in the top segment, segment of uh, today's program. We, we heard that the UN is projecting 9 billion people as our world population by 2050, so 2 more billion uh, souls to feed. But, but you're talking about as uh, emerging markets start to eat more beef, more protein, that we're going to need even more food uh, to feed that. And there's stress on the fish population, isn't that true? And and uh, it, is there a play for algae uh, in, in the fish market? Yes, yes, there is. Uh, it's, the, the fish market is, uh, has, a, has a problem that most fish eat other fish. And these small uh, little fingerlings of fish and, and, and minnows and things that they like to eat are, are in short quantity. So they're feeding them uh, things like soy protein. Soy protein doesn't uh, agree with uh, a lot of the fish out there, so they're, they're trying to find better formulations from algae. And from things like natural gas, which we can talk about later. But uh, for the moment, uh, algae has is, is traditionally been a, uh, a natural uh, source of food for fish and for crustaceans. And, uh, and it's still in the trial and error period. There, there are companies out there like Solana that are, are trialing it and they're getting it out to companies. And they're, they're trying it out. They're testing it out. But I think they need, it'll be a couple of years before they're able to get the type of volumes, I think, to be able to compete uh, on the bigger markets. And in, in the interim, on some of the smaller markets, uh, and for some of the fish hatcheries, I think they're going to have to start to have some success in the shorter term. So we have a, a fish digestion problem. So um, I guess this is in part the remedy. So so the poor fish—they're not feeling well. They're trying—they're eating too much uh, too much of the wrong stuff. Well, that I guess that affects uh, all of us. Uh, no surprise that it's affecting fish. A uh, company uh, we heard about, uh, Solana, is making uh, protein as a fish meal substitute. And they tell us that the prices for fish meal are much higher than fuel. So they are looking to make you know as much of that as possible and a little bit of that nutraceutical omega-3 at the, at the top of their, their uh, pyramid. Is that pretty typical to make uh, multiple products off the same? Is that the way it's going to go? Well, that's certainly the way we've seen it. The, the way that uh, we've seen it in the markets, uh, you know, from uh, algae is a lot like corn or soybean, where it's not just for oil; it can also be fractionated into protein and the carbohydrate. So, what algae producers have figured out is that once you extract the oil, you're left with protein and carbohydrates. So, what do you do with that? You go to the place where you can find, get the most money for your product. And uh, fish protein markets for the fish proteins. Uh, sell anywhere between $1,000 per ton all the way up to uh, $2,500 per ton, depending on uh, the quality of the deep. And, um, and so that's a lot better than, than say, the uh, petroleum markets right now, which are anywhere between $650 and $900 uh, per ton. And biodiesel, which is between uh, $750 and uh, $1,100, $1,200 per ton. So they're going to go after those higher value markets so they can uh, monetize their investments and capitalize what they're doing so they can deliver products to existing markets and they can give confidence to investors that we're producing a product, we're scaling up our operations, uh, we, we want to get into some of these, these bigger opportunities and, and with larger scale become larger opportunities. So fish feed is one of the first areas they're getting into before they will graduate down the road to the lower value products such as oils for transportation. So we've covered, we've got algae flour, we've got, we talked a little bit about algae oils, um, omega-3s, nutraceuticals. Uh, we've talked a little bit about uh, 
the um, animal, feel, uh, animal feed, a little bit on fuels, but also um, spirulina has been a product that has gotten a lot of attention as a superfood over the years, and Earthrise has been making that in California. Do you do you think that is that a is that a really viable uh, company with a big future, or is that a saturated market kind of a, a niche thing, spirulina? Um, spirulina has traditionally been a, a niche market, and I think it's now it's a growing market. Uh, with a growing number of players, uh, and uh, I, I believe it'll continue to keep growing. Um, uh, the the only issue is uh, how, as you said, how saturated will it be? And, and um, what we see traditionally are companies like Earthrise with these very big 100 uh, acre algae farms out there as as the key suppliers. And now you're seeing this, uh, alliances in France of uh, uh, these smaller. Spirulina producers are able to deliver it into very localized, specialized markets. And that's also happening out on the West Coast of California and in uh, and, and Washington and Oregon. So I think what we're seeing is the rise of the smaller player focusing on more of the niche markets. Uh, and that's, I expect that to see it for a while. So niche market uh, spirulina, but uh, it's been around for quite some time. What, um what is what is the uh, is is this a kind of a hippie food or is this something that you you think will have uh, uh, general market applications or is it always going to be found in boutiques and Whole Foods maybe you know in that universe or is this a is this a mass market breakout one of these days where where we're going to have algae algae everywhere? <laughs> well, um, I think it's a little bit of both a little bit of those things. Yeah, it's, it was a hippie food. Now it's a more of an Iron Man athlete food. If you go to Africa, it's, it's, it can be seen as uh, helping the infants and, and infant mortality food. So different applications for different places on, on, on the market side. Uh, it's moving from the hippie foods more to the athletic foods, with, which, which is basically this is healthier for you. This is better for you. And I think there's going to be a lot more uh, nutrition-focused uh, and oriented customers that are going to be interested in spirulina. Now, you see this uh, in... And drinks right now at the, the everyday store, your corner store, the gas station, the Seven Eleven you go to, uh, they'll sell drinks like Adwala and, and others that have uh, a bit of spirulina in them already, and that will increase the value of their product and, and uh, make it more marketable to those uh, nutrition conscious customers. So, I think we're we're seeing it start to saturate the market on uh, on a small level, and but it's going to be incremental. I don't think it's going to be a a grand breakout. I think it's going to be an incremental. Uh, uh, break in, and I think the proteins versus the spirulina are going to be, going to be a market that's going to go a lot faster than just your typical spirulina uh, health food drink type of applications. Well, Will, we're going to take a, a short break here, and we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about algae, 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 and and perhaps a little bit about the technology and where it's going to go, and 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 how soon it's coming along. Uh, stay with us. We're you're on uh, TerraTech. I'm your host Jim Lane, and we'll be back right after this. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Terratech is brought to you by the Advanced Bioeconomy Leadership Conference, March 1st through 3rd in Washington, D.C. Technology Convergence, Energy Security, Advanced Manufacturing, and Clean Economy Jobs. The RFS, which is Renewable Fuel Standard, is an important tool in the mission to achieve energy independence for the United States. Energy independence is a requirement of America's to become great again. My theme is make America great again. I will do all that is in my power as president to achieve 
that goal? Combination of biology and uh, the technologies coming out of IT is really what's going to drive some amazing oil new- prices. Yes, the story on um, everyone's talking about. But if the U.S. can prove that next-gen biofuels works and that you know other technologies work, like DME and and really great kind of biogas vehicles, then they can export that. The thing that really is exciting is this convergence. To learn more, visit biofuelsdigest.com/ablc. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to Terra Tech. To reach Jim Lane or his guest today, call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to jlane at biofuelsdigest.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to TerraTech. I'm your host, Jim Lane. In this segment, we are going back in time to the oldest superfood, superfuel, and supervitamin of all, and that's algae. And our, our guest uh, today is uh, Will Thurman, the author of Algae 2020, also the CEO of Emerging Markets online, uh, uh, author of many studies on, on, on the energy sector, but uh, has followed algae uh, throughout its, uh, its journey. Uh, Will, there's different ways to make it. Um, what originally, it, as most people would know, you grow it in a pond, and, and sometimes uh, a, lot of, a lot of money is spent on trying to stop it growing in a pond or in a pool. Um, it seems to, to grow wild. Uh, is that the, is that the path that we're going to have in the future? We're going to have these you know giant uh, ponds out in the middle of the desert growing a whole bunch of algae, or what's uh, what are the different ways that that uh, companies are trying to industrialize the making of algae? Okay, um, well the uh, there are basically three models that we see out there, and one is uh, a pond that's not too different from your your swimming pool, uh, but it looks like a horse plate, like a, like a horse track, and paddles move the water around a, uh, along sort of a uh, oblong circle. Uh, the second method is in tubes. It looks sort of like a hamster or a habit trail type of environment. But it's a series of tubes in a piping uh, type of uh, reactor uh, where you enclose the algae so they're not exposed to the elements. The third type is like brewing beer where they're in uh, fermenters and bioreactors. And you put the algae in as you would a yeast and you feed, feed it different sources of carbon and it'll turn those into... Uh, carbohydrates and hydrocarbons that you can eat and that you can put into your gas tank. Uh, so those are the three. One is, is a pond. One is a photobioreactor, which is made of a series of tubes. The third is fermenting like you would with beer uh, to produce desired molecules. In, in the fer- in case of a fermenter, Will, is it is it really like beer making? You throw a bunch of hops and, and maybe some... Uh uh, you know, maybe some corn sugars in there, and you make make a little whiskey or make a little beer. What does it work like that? It's more of a sci-fi version of that. Uh, it, 
you're going into laboratories and you're seeing uh, very advanced fermentation systems. So it wouldn't be exactly like going to a, a Budweiser uh, refinery where you see these massive tanks and, and massive fermenters. Uh, the algae industry is getting closer, but they're not there yet. Uh, it's sort of in between what you'd see in a sci-fi laboratory and what you'd see in a small-scale brewery, such as uh, what Sam Adams would have looked like maybe 15 or 20 years ago. You know, uh, Budweiser, uh, in its distilleries, they don't have much of a market for what are called the, the grain leftovers, the distiller grains. And and uh, they've actually been giving those over to an algae-based company, uh, Blue Marble Biomaterials, to make uh, exotic uh, flavors and fragrances from. So that's a that's a new application. Is uh, is that uh, is that a wave of the future? Uh, guys working with uh, partnering with large industrial companies that have waste sources, uh, perhaps of CO2 or other materials. Is that uh, we're going to see more of that? Yes. Yeah. This is something we know from the biofuels community is, is the bolt-on strategy, where you go to existing uh, biorefinery and you bolt-on and you make a designer chemical or molecule, um, such as as biobutanol. In the case of algae, what we're seeing is there's a lot of food waste, agricultural waste that can come from uh, things like breweries, where you can go and you can bolt on your technology and, and you can make things like these very expensive perfumes and fragrances and, and, and colorings and things like that that can, that can recycle a waste product into uh, a, uh, a high-end consumer product. So uh, those two uh, core ideas, bolting on to an existing uh, uh, biorefiner with a waste stream and also turning uh, low-value uh, goods uh, and recycling them, uh, waste goods, into higher-value Consumer product, think about it to the customers. So those are two of the key trends that I see coupled when you look at companies like Biomarble Materials. Now, will we know that algae uses CO two um, to make uh, and water and sunlight, or in the case of fermenters, they would have you know perhaps a sugar in the fermenter there. But let's say an open open pond. Why 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 are we not just simply going to all these coal fired power plants and you know sticking a lid on them? and venting a whole bunch of uh, CO2 over to an algae plant. Uh, wh- why aren't we seeing a ton of that, given that we have this CO2 problem that uh, uh, we are told about from our friends in the climate science community? Well, uh, but one, one thing has to do with uh, the amount of land that's around a power plant. There's not a whole lot of land uh, that, that can be used for uh, for these algae reactors. So the uh, the the raceway ponds, the open ponds, require quite a bit of land to do that. So if you were to, to make a very deep pod and, and put carbon dioxide in from a smokestack, it would be something like having uh, a jacuzzi out there and just pumping in air. It would just sort of evaporate. So you start to look at things like photobioreactors and how big can you scale them up on the uh, plot of the small plot of land that you have next to a big uh, coal-fired power plant. And you see that they're more scalable and that the, uh, the carbon dioxide doesn't dissipate or evaporate as they would the pods. But it's more expensive to build up a large structure than it is just to, to clear a field and, and to put in a, uh, a pod, uh, a raceway pod for housing. So uh, companies are trying to come up with very different and unique ways uh, of doing this. And uh, Traditionally, pods have been used uh, as testing and what we're seeing now uh, with companies like Duke Energy uh, down in the Carolinas, they're they're trying out some of the photobioreactors to see how they work. And on a much larger scale, uh, we're, we're going to see it from some food manufacturers that are are looking at taking things like carbon dioxide and, and methane and turning them in using algae as a as a medium to turn them into products. Um, so 
I think in the short term it can be done with pods. Uh, it's more likely to be done with photobioreactors and in some cases with uh, some of these brewery type of systems, the fermentation systems. Now, one of the reasons that, that people get excited about algae is because of the productivity. It grows really fast. Um, can you put that in context with us? Um, let's say uh, someone who's familiar with a cornfield, maybe that would get uh, two or three tons per acre, perhaps, uh, per year at, uh, at harvest time. What, uh, what can you do with algae? Is it, is it materially better, like order of magnitude better, or is it you know, like double what you see for terrestrial crops? Well, the, the traditional baseline metric that's been used for a while is, is uh, that soybeans and, and soybean oil, you can produce about uh, somewhere between 50 and 70 gallons uh, of oil, uh, vegetable oil per acre. With algae, that's anywhere between 5,000 uh, up to 10,000 gallons per acre. So that's an order of magnitude about 10 times greater per acre that, that can be produced. And that can be done. It's just more expensive to do than soy. So... Uh, uh, that's what we're seeing in terms of orders of magnitude, uh, in terms of orders of price and economics. Uh, the price for producing algae is still uh, above about $4,000 per ton, so that excludes you from the lower-end markets for uh, the lower-end animal feed and, and uh, proteins and, uh, and some of these uh, triglycerides and vegetable oils. But it does include you in the higher-end uh, proteins and for animal feed, the higher-end products for Nutrition, uh, that where customers look for alternatives and algae can produce things like spirulina and omega-3s and, and uh, specialty molecules that are, are focused on the nutrition market. Now, the, the Department of Energy has an algae program where they're uh, trying to target $5 a gallon as an intermediate price. Clearly, that's not going to be something that's going to be viable in the fuel markets uh, today for the, from the Energy Department's uh, point of view. but but a platform for the future if oil prices were to rise or if technology improves. Now, that would be roughly something around the order of 1500 bucks a ton. Um, you're talking about 4000 So what's going to happen between now and then to bring down the cost of algae to liberate some of these products like algae flour and omega-3 spirulina so that they're more widely available in the market pre- uh, marketplace at affordable prices? What, what's going to happen? What's the change? Okay. Well, the, the survey that we did at Algae 2020 uh, and talking, uh, visiting about 30 different algae production sites and talking with about over 100 scientists over the course of three years is, is the, the survey told us that uh, that these companies are small companies, they're startups, and they're going to need to generate cash flow. So they're going to have to go after the higher end markets, the ones that are at the five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars per ton and above uh, to survive. And uh, over time, they're, they're going to focus on the three things they can make from algae, which are oil, proteins, and carbohydrates. Um, and they're going to need to go out and saturate those markets. We're seeing that now. And uh, if you look at it as, uh, as a pyramid, where the top are the highest value products, uh, uh, the highest value price products, but the smallest markets. So you go to the bottom of the pyramid, where it's the lowest value products, but the biggest market, the biggest part of the pyramid. That's what we're seeing. Companies are going to the top, and, and they're trying to monetize what they can there. Now, those are going to get saturated fairly quickly, I think, in the flavors markets, in the cosmetics markets, in the fragrances markets, in the high-end proteins markets, where we're seeing a lot of the action down. And then we're going to go into the more uh, middle end, where you're talking about with Terabia and, and uh, Modi uh, coming from Helia and Mars and working on that. That's happening now. We're going to see that happen more over the next five or ten years. Those are going to be the bigger, more addressable markets. 
where I think some big money can be made. And then eventually we're going to get into, into the biggest markets, which are these big markets for vegetable oils and, and for, for biodiesels and fuels and things like that. And those can get as high as $1,800 uh, per ton for uh, the very high end of, of olive oils uh, and nutritional oils. Uh, but the baseline is around seven hundred dollars right now. So that's so it's basically a, th- a three uh, a three part forecast. The first part is the next two or three years, the small beast markets, uh, the next three to five years, uh, the the middle size markets that are higher value. And over the over five to ten years, uh, we'll see uh, the bigger markets for the lower value products, such as uh, the uh, the vegetable oils, uh, the soil equivalent, the soy uh, protein meal equivalent, things like that. It's going to take some time to get through those markets, uh, to be able to produce it, those quantities, to get the economies of scale up where the, the cost of goods can come down and they can break into these bigger markets. So, Will, the barriers that you're talking about are more economic at this point. Um, technology barriers seem to be less on your radar in terms of actually making this stuff. It seems to be a case of making it, but not quite affordable yet, but costs you know, could be coming down perhaps radically soon. This vision of the algae economy where you have these giant uh, production plants that are situated perhaps in the desert because algae doesn't need to be on arable land, uh, taking waste CO2 from sources that uh, would otherwise vent it into the atmosphere, and possibly even using brackish water, you know, salt water that, uh, salt intruded water that we can't uh, use for, for the, uh, um, you know, for consumption. Is that is that a real vision? Is that is that an aspirational thing that we won't see for two hundred years, or are are those kinds of um, uh, plants and production facilities things that we might see in our lifetime? Uh, well, we're, we've been testing that uh, quite a bit for the last eight or nine years. What's been visible, and, and for actually more than, than uh, seventy years, if you go all the way back to uh, MIT in, you know, in the fifth. In the, 40s and 50s, you look what they did. So um, I, I think they will be uh, feasible, but it's, uh, it'll probably go along that progression of products uh, chart in time. But I think, as I was telling you, it'll probably start with these higher value uh, products and then go to the more mid value, uh, higher market size products and then the lower value, bigger size market products. And the vision of algae in the desert has been proven in places like Israel. Um, where they're developing uh, nutritional uh, products, they're able to sell them. Uh, and we've seen a lot of that activity in, in the United States, first focus on how do we support the Department of Energy and its goals to uh, produce more biodiesel and more jet fuel. Um, and as those uh, government policies and aspirations uh, are, are mitigated by these small companies and, and their need for cash and cash flow, uh, we're going to see a mix of both. We're going to see continue to see the government Focusing and pushing these uh, algae technologies towards energy consumption, uh, sorry, towards energy products and jet fuel, uh, drop-in fuels, uh, biodiesel, renewable diesel type fuels. Uh, but we're going to see a continuation of these small to mid-sized products that are going to be needed to get the cash flow necessary to keep these operations going as viable, profitable enterprises. So omega threes today, spirulina today. Algae flour, algae oil, right around the corner, just coming on the market now, and things like uh, large-scale applications, commodities like renewable chemicals and fuels, those are going to be more in the 2030s or beyond. Is that is that uh, a fair way to look at it? 
yes, well, they're here now. They're just expensive, so it's going to take uh, years to to get the economy to scale up and get the cost down. So that I think you're right, Jim. Uh, today we're going to see the omegas and, and the uh, nutritional things uh, around the corner. It's going to be the proteins and, and the feed, and then down the road we're going to see uh, the the more uh, energy and fuel applications being used. Well, Will, thanks for joining us today. Uh, this is uh, Terratech. Our focus today has been algae, algae, algae. I'm your host, Jim Lane. Thanks for joining us today. We'll be back next week for more on sustainable products that will change your life and you can find today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for tuning in to Terratech. Please join your host, Jim Lane, again next Wednesday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And this week, take notice of the products in your life.